Dear Broadies, before I get to the episode, I want to take a moment to address the June 24th, 2022 Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. This decision stripped away the right to have a safe and legal abortion in the United States. Everyone should have the freedom to decide what's best for themselves and their families, including when it comes to ending a pregnancy. This decision has dire consequences for individual health and safety, and could have harsh repercussions for other landmark decisions in this country. Restricting access to comprehensive reproductive care, including abortion, threatens the health and independence of all Americans and people who live in America. Learn more by visiting choice.crd.co. That's choice.crd.co. If you're able to support others, please consider donating to abortion funds. You can find a list of where to donate in each state at donationsforabortion.com. That's donations, the number four, abortion.com. I have personally started donating to states where trigger laws go into effect immediately. Remember, even if you can only spend $1 or $5, that helps. There are things we can do to fight this, and it is going to take continued focus and community support. So I encourage you to speak up, take care, and spread the word. I think that the most embattled places often produce the most creative resistance. And I don't say that to like glorify how hard it is to live in certain places. I don't think we need to, um, I don't think anyone needs to be oppressed to have creative modes of resisting. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Pod Broads. This is a podcast about women in podcasting, and I'm your host, Alexandra Cole. Welcome back, my broadies. It is another beautiful week to be sharing the words of another wonderful, beautiful podcaster. And today I'm sharing an interview I had with Amelia Harubi, who is the host and creator of 50 Feminist States, a storytelling podcast featuring feminist activists and artists across the U.S. and also one that I featured on Podradar on my website way back when, and we've just remained in touch since. And she is also the author of the book, 50 Feminist Mantras, which she first self-published back in 2017, but then became republished in October 2020 with Andrews McNeil. And it's a perfect complement to her podcast, which is something we speak about in depth during this conversation and how other creators may want to think about creating different types of work alongside their podcast. Amelia will tell you all about her education and teaching background once we officially jump in. But for me, she is someone I have just connected so much with in terms of how she moves through her work and how she talks about feminism, how she comes at it from a very intersectional lens. And I've also just learned so much from her both before and during this conversation. And I really admire the way that she navigates speaking about feminism and critique. There's a part where I'm just completely basking in her word choice and how she moves through answering some of my quite complicated questions. And she's truly a joy to listen to as she impacts all of these very complex pieces when we're talking about anything related to feminist work, but also identity and 
I'm just, I was in awe through a lot of it. So I promise you, you're going to get a lot from this conversation. And a few of the major points we hit are, of course, how she began 50 Feminist States, why she chose it for it to be a road tripping podcast, and how traveling as a white woman in America is a perfect example of privilege, despite the typical narrative and valid narrative sometimes of the dangers around traveling alone as a woman and how we can begin to examine that. We also get into how she defines feminism and the feminine in her experience and identity, how her Instagram feminist mantras and crowdfunding led to a book deal, and some sad yet celebratory news about her podcast. But I'll just let you get to it, and you'll be hearing us directly after we had a very laughter-filled pre-conversation around astrology and my continued desire to understand it more and Amelia's complete skill at naming all the ways in which it informs her identity. For my listeners, can you give your official intro of who you are separate from your work and who you are in your work and what you do? I love how you pose this question. Um, I am Amelia Hruby. I am a feminist writer, educator, and podcaster. I have a PhD in philosophy with an emphasis in women and gender studies. I wrote a book that came out last year called 50 Feminist Mantras, and I run a podcast called 50 Feminist States, which is how we got to know each other. Yes. Those are all my like work things <laughs> in terms of who I am as a person. Um, I am an Aries sun, Capricorn rising, Gemini moon. <laughs> got to throw that in there. Um, yep. I love gardening. I love reading. I love my cat and my two dogs. I love puttering around the house like an old lady, just like... <laughs> You know, moving stuff around and taking care of things. Um, caregiver is one of my primary archetypes that people are into that. Mm-hmm. And overall, I just love having conversations with people. Like everything I do is about being in conversation and community with others. So I'm mm-hmm. super excited to be in conversation with you today, Alexandra. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you're welcome. I'm so thrilled that you're here. We were just talking about before we officially hit record for this podcast that we feel like we have actually spoken to each other in real time before, but we haven't. We yeah. have just, just, Instagram. just seen each other <laughs> on social media yep. and like stories and IG lives and uh, yeah. got connected through podcasting. And I have to say, because I want to respond to a couple of things you said, I have to say you were definitely one of the first people... As I was developing Podgerland, the blog, mm-hmm. all that jazz um, that I got connected to that I was just like really stoked about what you're doing because, yeah, but like we just really align a lot in like value system, the way we approach our work, mm-hmm. kind of some of the schooling background and like the theories that we focused mm-hmm. on and also just like the teaching bit. Um, yeah. So I just, yeah, I just love when that happens. And so it's exciting that we now get to talk in real time about some of these things that you're working on. And I can't wait to ask you some of these questions. Also, I love that you use the word puttering because that's my mother to a T. She's always like, make sure you putter around the house, like especially when I'm sick and I'm like, I know. And then I find myself using that phrasing and I'm like, I am my mother. It's like, uh, it's definitely my dad in my life who like just putters around his garage and he's getting ready to retire. So he's like extra puttering all the time. Um, But I, I see myself becoming him in many ways, which I love. Oh my God. Amazing. Um, so today I want to start with 50 Feminist States. Yeah. And 
where I would like to start in that journey is how did you begin to decide that this would be a podcast that would involve road tripping? Mm -hmm. And to that question, was that something that you did before? Or was this like a wildly different approach to like travel and kind of research and writing that you decided to try out? Yeah, yeah. Thanks for asking. Um, So 50 Feminist States really came together as I would say like a really intentional effort on my part to like deeply integrate a lot of different aspects of my life. Mm -hmm. Um, I was in grad school studying feminism. I was um, living in Chicago, but really feeling like I wanted to get out of the city and travel more. I had just learned how to podcast from my work at a community radio station in Chicago. Um, They totally taught me how to podcast to help run their online, like local artist interview podcast. Mm. And so all of that kind of happened. And I was really, I was at a point in my life where I just felt like I was doing a lot of things and none of them connected to each other. And so I really wanted to try to have something where I got to do a piece of all the different things I did. And that became 50 Feminist States. And for your question about the road tripping piece, I have loved driving since I could drive, like getting my learner's (laughs) permit, getting my driver's license, having a car. It was huge for me. And I have always loved road trips. And the summer after I graduated college, I drove cross country by myself. Um, Oh, cool. I had like a little travel blog, Tumblr, Instagram thing, you know, as I one did it. in like 2013, whatever right. year that was. <laughs> um, I called it Jill Kerouac instead of Jack Kerouac. <laughs> I um, So I was already into like feminist travel as a concept, um, but 50 Feminist States, like I really, I like brought that in. I brought the podcasting in. And I'd say the other motivation for the project for me was that... I was really digesting kind of the differences that I saw in feminist efforts and opinions between living in Chicago and having grown up in North Carolina and gone to college there. Um, I Mm -hmm. went to a women's college in North Carolina. um, And I really, I often felt frustrated with the like, liberal, urban, you know, like blue city, I'm putting that in Mm -hmm. air quotes for people listening, Um, (laughs) like urban center that was like very judgmental of more like quote unquote red states. And I really wanted to like the motivation for the podcast was to really explore like the rich feminist activist and artistic work that I thought was happening in areas of the country that were just being super overlooked, particularly more Mm -hmm. rural areas. Um, I just thought that there was this, like, there's so much beautiful feminist activism in Chicago, but I also thought people in those areas had a lot to learn from um, some of the more, what I would consider like embattled areas where people are up against a lot of conservative Mm -hmm. politics and opinions. And so I wanted the in the podcast, I really wanted to feature that. And I really, if you listen to the 55 episodes we've done so far, um, most of them don't happen in big, in cities. I find that Mm -hmm. like most of them are happening in place. My goal is to go places you'd never expect to find really cool feminist work. So I got a little off um, topic of your question there, but that really was like the emotional or like core motivation for the trip or for the podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Well, actually, you started to hit on one of 
my follow-up questions, which was going to be specifically about that, like feminist grassroots focus. Mm -hmm. And, and it, it also makes me think just about this last year with the election and specifically Georgia. Like, I feel like I definitely growing up was one of those people who very definitively had an idea of like the South versus like the North, at least on like yeah. the East side of the country, yeah. just because that was kind of my familiarity growing up in Maryland and kind of being smacked up in the middle in yeah. terms of how I view it. But um, really not seeing and understanding the grassroots efforts down in these southern states and how they're actually way more quote-unquote blue than we might think oh, yeah. it's just a lack of resources and a lot of like voter suppression and all that shit yeah i think when people think about the south and especially when they think about the rural south they just think of like conservative white people but that's like really a false narrative i mean the south is full of communities of color uh, many, many black communities who have historically always voted blue mm -hmm. or democratically or um, I mean, not, I shouldn't say always because it flipped. There was a point when like mm -hmm. the Republican Party was the more liberal one and we've we've kind of, that's reversed to now. Um, mm -hmm. But I really thought about that a lot, particularly when I was in North Carolina and I did three episodes in a really rural part of eastern North Carolina. And if you look at the voting maps and the history there, that part of the state has always voted with the more liberal or Democratic Party. And people mm. overlook them time and time again. And they're incredibly under-resourced. And it's a predominantly African-American or Black community. And so I just think that so much of our national cultural narratives about the South are false. And you like talked about Georgia, where this is definitely like coming up a lot over the past year or really over the past uh, over the past forever but we're seeing right. <laughs> getting the coverage at the national More scale exposure, yeah. yeah over the past few years <laughs> exactly and i i also just as like a follow-up of these grassroots efforts then you've been able to see and experience and have conversation in real time with the folks who are doing it what have been this is probably a big question but if you can think of just like one or two examples mm -hmm. what are some of the main pieces of feminist movement in these areas that we don't normally get like national coverage or like the the greater like liberal city feminist approach misses in these conversations yeah yeah I think what what I always like to say is that I think that the most embattled places often produce the most creative resistance Mm -hmm. And I don't say that to like glorify how hard it is to live in certain places. I don't think we need to, um, I don't think anyone needs to be oppressed to have creative <laughs> modes of resisting. I'm not trying to say mm -hmm. that at all, but I could use an example of somewhere like Arkansas. So when I went to Arkansas, I interviewed Diego Barrera, who was a co-founder of a group called Intransitive there. And I interviewed Diego, gosh, a few years ago now. Um, about the work that Intransitive was doing to support the trans migrant and immigrant community in Arkansas and explicitly to organize transnationally because so many of the members of their community were either immigrants or first generation or even undocumented. And so they were always organizing in a way that was in conversation with um, trans communities and rights in the countries that they were coming from too. And I just think that like, 
that's happening in Arkansas. And that organization specifically, like Intransitive now in 2021, was a huge part of raising the national conversation around the sort of horrendous bills that are being passed in Arkansas around like not um, recognizing trans lives and identities, refusing medical and health care for trans um, mm-hmm. people in the state. And it's been really, I think, like powerful for, for, for me, it's been really powerful to watch like that organization evolve in response to what's ha- what they're facing. And I would say mm-hmm. like they've been they've they're facing a lot a lot of really hard and horrible circumstances but i've been heartened to see that people are paying attention from across the u.s and i think that things are really shifting in that way i think that um you know when i was there when i was in arkansas two or two years ago i would say that not a lot of people outside of little rock or fayetteville were paying attention to intransitive and now i think they have a really big national following which is really exciting to see Um, and I think that people are finally kind of seeing, you've mentioned Georgia. Now I'm mentioning Arkansas, like people are seeing people across the U S are seeing what's happening in these States as national problems to be reckoned with and that we all have a stake in this. And I think that's really important. I think that that helps local grassroots movements get the momentum they need to make really powerful change in their communities. Yeah. I'm just enjoying hearing you speak about it. I, <laughs> I get really like passionate about it. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. I just when 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 people are like getting into the zone, and I'm just like, wow, she's like, I just I don't know. I have a hard time putting words together sometimes. Like I'm much more of it's kind of ironic. I like I'm hosting a podcast and enjoy really being on them, but my expertise really lies in the written word more Mm so. I'm still a practicing person in terms of putting my thoughts together in real time and speaking them. So I'm always just like really enraptured when I hear someone doing that really well. So that's what that was Uh, for me. Well, well, thank you. And I have had, I mean, I've been working on 50 feminist states for, gosh, over three years now and you know I've produced over 50 episodes of the podcast Mm -hmm. so I will also say that you know it's like practice (laughs) and a lot of (laughs) I've had a lot of practice talking about these things and um, figuring out like my opinions and beliefs too which I think is a really important part of feminism and something I'm really trying to do through the podcast is invite people into their own like process of inquiry like what's important to you what are your feminist values you know, on the podcast, I don't really talk about like, what does feminism mean to you? But what I do try to do is bring to the fore a lot of different issues that I think should Mm -hmm. be important within feminism and to feminists. And I think anyone who listens to every episode of the podcast will learn about a cause that like, or learn about an issue that had never occurred to them. And I will Mm -hmm. also myself included, I have learned (laughs) so much about what's happening in the U.S. and around the world from having these conversations Mm -hmm. um, with people who are generous enough to share their time with me. And before COVID, they were sharing their space with me because I was traveling and going to see them and meeting them where they work. And that was really special, Um, really special too. Yeah. Well, and so I want to dive into that, the travel piece a Mm -hmm. little bit, because you mentioned earlier this, the blog that you had and <laughs> yeah. the the direct, uh, you know, intersection of feminist travel. And I know that, you know, there can be a lot of discourse around traveling alone as a woman. Mm-hmm. And 
it's often recommended not to do that. And so I really wonder in terms of your personal journey now, I know COVID kind of caused a little upheaval in those (laughs) plans, but having done that for a substantial amount of time, how has it impacted your own journey into defining feminism for yourself and how it functions Mm -hmm. in your personal experience? Yeah. So I'll start by saying that I love traveling alone and I love traveling alone as a woman. Um, It's a really empowering experience for me. I feel very powerful when I am making like all of the choices of where I go and how I get there and how I spend my time. So travel always feels really empowering. Something I have confronted while traveling for the podcast, though, is definitely um, a lot of privilege, my own privilege, particularly Mm -hmm. my white privilege, especially when traveling in the South. Um, Mm. Almost every person of color that I spoke to in the South about the trip was like, wow, I would never feel safe ever. Like they're like, Mm. that's really amazing that you're doing this. I would never feel safe just like getting in a car and feeling like I could go anywhere. And I think that is 100% white privilege in action. Like the fact that I can, I can drive anywhere and feel relatively safe. Um, And I think that's because because I'm white. There have definitely been moments when as a woman, I have felt unsure or unsafe or nervous about a situation Mm -hmm. I might have been in. And I think those are situations where like my financial privilege really helps because Mm -hmm. I am able to, you know, I do plan the trips on a very small, low budget, but if I show up somewhere and I don't feel safe, you know, there's a credit card at hand that will take me somewhere else. So it's never been, I'm never stuck in a situation where I have to stay feeling unsafe. Um, And I just like to name that when I talk, Mm because I like to say, people ask me about traveling for the podcast. I like to say that like, it is a joy and I love it. (laughs) And I feel so powerful when I do it. And in that moment of feeling so powerful, I can also reflect on the privilege that like in that power. Um, Mm -hmm. And they're like, it's just a reality. I mean, and I, and I don't, I think an important thing to say there too, is like, it doesn't make me feel guilty or bad, but it does give me this lens to say like, we lived in a fucked up country. And I do think sometimes I often use my privilege like in service of the podcast and telling these and sharing these stories. So Mm -hmm. um, that's like one. And I think that kind of does then answer the broader scope of your question. Like traveling in this way has really made me reflect on privilege differently, which has informed my feminism and has Mm -hmm. informed my feminist politics because it is this moment of grappling with privilege and trying to understand how to acknowledge privilege without necessarily apologizing for it or feeling guilty or bad or shameful. I think when you get stuck in that like shame cycle, it doesn't help anybody. Um, yeah. But you need to be acknowledged and be aware. So I'm able to like acknowledge and be aware of privilege in a new way because I've traveled across the US. And then I'm also able to kind of think about how to channel privilege toward a greater good, which may sound really cheesy, but um, (laughs) it is something that I think about. Like what, if I have this privilege, what do I do with it? Um, And what I have done with it is really try to share stories. And in most instances, like try to pass the mic. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think about that a lot and how I do the interviews, how I produce them. Like how can I give someone else's 
story, like as much quote unquote airtime as possible. And so those are ways that traveling has impacted my feminism. And I think for me, there are always kind of two pieces. When I'm thinking about feminism, I'm always kind of thinking of of at least two pieces, but one piece is really like values based. It's like, what are the values that the feminist values that I want to um, embed in the podcast Mm -hmm. and in the project? And that connects a lot to my book, 50 Feminist Mantras, too, where I'm I'm working Mm -hmm. with values of like ease, of generosity. That's a big value, I'd say, that's embedded in this project of transparency. That's really important to me, Mm -hmm. um, of accountability, um, and also of care, of listening in a really particular way. Like those are all ways that I like I work to embed feminism in the project. And then Mm -hmm. 50 Feminist States also is like we talk about very clear feminist issues like um, reproductive justice, like environmental justice, like, um, what are other things we talked about? Immigration. Like <laughs> we, you know, we talk about big issues. Um, and I talked always to, um, primarily like women as well as gender nonconforming queer and non-binary folks of, you know, all genders or mm-hmm. those are kind of all different categories. So I, I, talked to, yeah. I just basically what I mean by that is I don't, have cis men on the podcast, but anybody else <laughs> who has like a clear gendered perspective to their work, um, yeah. is somebody I want to talk to and I want to learn like how, um, how is this, how is what you're doing in service of liberation for all? And like, how do we understand gender in the context of what you're working on? That's what I want to talk to everybody about who comes on 50 feminist states. Yeah. Uh, and in hearing you talk about this part, this is another area that you and I are very aligned in and and it's that piece of approaching these conversations and the learning bit as mm-hmm. a continuous thing. There was something that actually it was on your episode with Green Girl Leah, which mm-hmm. was I was also really excited to see her on there. Um, but something that you two were talking about toward the end of the episode was this thing about how educating yourself, it doesn't have to be this like, you know, like kind of burdensome association Mm -hmm. or like struggle to have to do. It's more so this can be an exciting thing. It's remaining curious. It's ever happening because we as humans are ever growing and changing. And Mm -hmm. that's also how I really try and approach this work and try and approach the way I'm interacting with it. And that's not to say that I don't have moments where I've gone into like a shameful or guilty like feeling and I have to work through that, but it's not sitting in that and it's not directly associating it with learning all the time. So I like that. And I don't know if you have anything else to like add to or expand on that, but I wanted to pinpoint that piece because I think it's so important to this work. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I just think like I do this work with joy and because it's joyful like I yeah it sure it's hard and sure I'm uncomfortable sometimes and sure I fuck things up because I do and Mm -hmm. um sometimes you know and then that's really hard when you fuck something up and it's somebody else's words or you say something that's not true accidentally like you accidentally say something that's not true about them or they have to Mm -hmm. correct you like all of that stuff has happened to me um (laughs) and you know, I've put my foot in my mouth many times doing an interview and that is fine. I still do the work with joy and I still take those moments and I learn with joy in them. And I 
accept correction or education gracefully and I appreciate it like quite honestly um and I think that's so important and I think you know our white supremacist patriarchal capitalist society of course I'm gonna say that at some point um yeah of course we're just like we're so conditioned to try to be right all the time and it's so Mm What comes, the word that comes to mind is boring, but I mean, like, I want to say something more intense than that. Like, it's just, it's, it's bullshit. Harmful. It's boring. Yeah. It's harmful. Yeah. Um, and so <laughs> when I, like, hearing what you were talking about with, like, being open to learning in that way, like, yeah, that's like a full body yes from me. And I just always like to say, like, it is a joy to learn from other people and it is a joy to be um, invited into that, invited into knowing them better, invited into knowing their experience better, invited into knowing their story better. And sometimes that means being told that you got it wrong and that's Mm -hmm. okay. And sometimes it means telling other people they got it wrong. (laughs) And I relish in those moments too. Um, (laughs) Sometimes they're awesome. It's really, it'd be really nice to tell somebody like, no, you got that totally wrong when they're mansplaining to you or like, exactly when you're um, flipping a power imbalance that can feel really gratifying, but you know, I've also very, well, very graciously um, try to invite people into learning moments when they say something harmful or um, incorrect about another person, say pronouns or something else. Um, so again, I'm kind of, now I'm just pulling together random examples, but I... <laughs> I love I've, the examples. <laughs> give them to me. <laughs> um, no, I just appreciate the way you kind of made space for that because it is so important. And for anyone listening who you know, whether you listen to, if you do go listen to 50 Feminist States, I want you to feel invited into learning about these different issues and not feel like bad or like you or shame, ashamed that you don't already know about them. Like I have no expectation of that. And sometimes Mm -hmm. I, you know, if I self, if I want to reflect for a moment too, there have been many times where I've realized that I didn't actually give enough context or information about something that I was going to talk about on the podcast. And I'll have people come to me and be like, I don't, I don't get this thing. You're like, this thing doesn't make sense to me that you're talking about. And I'll realize like, Oh, you know, I could have done more there. Or sometimes I'll realize like, yeah, you don't get it because this episode's not really for for you. And that's okay Mm -hmm. too. Like, you know, some episodes I'm creating them to, and this is a much more like conceptual producing question but you know in some episodes uh, the way I produce them I really let the activists kind of speak to other activists speak to people who Mm -hmm. will get them and who are going to feel just really like seen when they hear what that activist has to say and in some episodes I'm really trying to share an activist's work in a way that's going to translate to people who aren't involved in that at all and that's just not true for everybody's work like some people's work is for their community Um, it's not for everybody. And some people's work is for everybody. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. I hope that makes sort of makes sense. It's something I think about a lot when producing. Yeah, it totally makes sense. And it's, it's something I also have been thinking about this whole time in making the pod broads is, you know, certain conversations that I might be having might feel, I don't know, maybe like repetitive or it's like, oh, we've touched on that already. And I'm like, but maybe it's hitting the right ears this time or which ears is this for? And mm-hmm. it's okay if you don't want to listen to that episode because you're like, I don't really need to hear that. Um, or yeah. maybe you do and you've learned something. And I also think of this episode of Code Switch where they're talking about, they're specifically having conversation around how much do we go into 
explaining our culture mm-hmm. um, in terms of like black culture, um, mm-hmm. like Latin American culture and just the non-white, quote unquote, like non-white um, like references mm-hmm. that maybe white people won't get. So it's like, are yeah. we pandering too much to a white audience by explaining mm-hmm. uh, this is them, of course, kind of talking through this on this episode. I'll have to find the name of it and put it in the show notes because I don't remember the name of it. But yeah. it's it's really just investigating that. It's like, when do we decide to give more context so that mm-hmm. maybe this is reaching audiences that need to hear it yeah. in the way that they need to hear it. And then at some point, are we explaining too much so that it feels like it's not for the audience we want it to be for? Yes. So it, it's yeah. always a, I think it's something that's ever moving depending on the the topic or the conversation, as you mentioned. Yeah, definitely. And as you were saying that, I mean, that, I, I resonate with that so much. And I'd love to listen to this episode of Code Switch. So when you put it in the show, I'll, notes, I'll go, yeah. I'll go listen to it. <laughs> yeah. um, but it, it was just reminding me too of um, something I do in my own work outside of podcasting, which is kind of the difference between educating and holding space. And so mm. there are I have, I taught at a university for five years during grad school. So I've, I've been the educator in a room many times where my job is to teach people and like is to translate like across contexts and try to make it land with everybody, which means a lot of, um, explaining. And then I've also been in, been in spaces where I'm just facilitating, I'm holding space. And that is an instance where I'm not trying to translate any one person's experience. So everybody gets it. I'm just trying to create a space in which people can share and whatever resonates will resonate. Um, mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I think that it just happens. It's just that you think about it so much on a podcast and there are definitely some episodes of 50 feminist States where I'm educating in the mm-hmm. early, the very first season, especially I did a lot of um, did a lot of narration and I did really much more highly produced episodes and I really was trying to educate And then over time, I was really just doing a lot. I started just having conversations. um, And I think I was doing a lot more. I have been doing a lot more. just kind of like holding space for activists to, I love when they tell their origin story. Like, how'd you get into this? What? And because in that story, always, almost always, it's like, this happened in my life and it was kind of a breaking point. And I had to, Mm -hmm. I had to do this work. Um, or I saw something or experienced something or whatever it is like, and it, it became necessary. And so I really like to hold space for those conversations. Um, Mm -hmm. and it's like a really special project and to be able to do that. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's also like in essence, a symbiotic almost relationship between audience and the person who is creating it, because if you're teaching or if you're, putting something out there in the hopes that it lands on multiple people with multiple ways of coming into what Mm. they're receiving at a certain point, you can only do so much. Mm. Um, And then it's up to that audience person to decide maybe this isn't for me, but it doesn't mean it can't be something I can research further to understand more of the context and take that on Mm -hmm. myself. Yes. Yeah, definitely. And I think that, um, to me, that's like always the appropriate response to hearing something right. where you're like, oh, I don't quite get this. And I think I want to. So let's I, learn more. Yeah. Like I should go learn. I should listen to some other podcast that this person might have been on or I should like Google it. Um, right. I think people's response is often to just demand that the person explain it to them. But yeah. I really believe in like everyone is empowered to do their own learning. Um, mm-hmm. So, yes, I always think that's good, too. Hey, friends. 
just a brief pause from this conversation so I can tell you about The Wave Podcasting. The Wave is a company that helps women grow their podcasts so they can build an audience and get paid. They offer educational resources and a digital community of which I am a part of and have gotten to meet some pretty dope women and get some great tips along the way. Plus, the founder, Lauren Popish, is a huge reason I have been able to start this podcast. She helped me find the perfect recording equipment for my setup and just get really comfortable with jumping in for the first time. And here's what's cool. They have a free mini guide that will help you kickstart your podcast growth strategy that you can download today by going to the show notes to find the link to their website. And when you're ready, you can purchase a complete guide to podcasting and use my code PODRALAND, P-O-D-D-R-A-L-A-N-D-10 to get 10% off the total cost. So ladies, come podcast. Okay, one more important PSA. Here's my challenge for you. Take a screenshot right now of this episode and share on social media with a tag to Podgerland and the guest. I want to know that you're listening and I want to shout you out. Also, are you signed up for Podgerland's email list yet? Because as much as I love social media and connecting through there, I'm also preparing for its demise and I want to make sure that I stay in touch with you and we have control over our communication. Not only will you get important updates about this show, you'll get recommendations of other women-hosted podcasts, news related to podcasters you love, discounts on my cute-ass merch, and much more. Okay, let's get back into this interview. So I definitely want to shift into talking about 50 feminist mantras a little bit and because it you know you've mentioned it already but it really involves these approaches in the same way of letting someone explore their own relationship with their feminism and can you talk a little bit just about the origin because I know it started initially as an Instagram post Mm -hmm. and how it came to be and also how it complements the podcast because a lot of people I hear in the discourse are like, I want to figure out a way to like either make a book from my podcast or um, maybe it was a book and now they want to make it a podcast. And you're actually someone that I've recommended these people go check out sometimes because I think you do a good job in like creating complimentary work, but not mm. repetitive work yeah. in these different types of mediums. So if you could speak a little bit to that process. Yeah, definitely. Um, so 50 Feminist Mantras came first. I started that on Instagram in fall of 2016, on Halloween, actually, Halloween 2016. I wrote a mantra. I think it was like, get witchy or get a little witchy or something <laughs> like that. Um, I love it. Yeah, that was the general <laughs> tone. Um, and I posted on Instagram with a caption. Oh, no, actually, at that time, I posted it on my blog. I had a blog. And so oh. I put it on there and I wrote like a blog post about like be- witchiness, I guess. Um, yeah. And then on Instagram, I would posted a picture of the mantra and I was like, go read my blog. It's there. <laughs> um, <laughs> and at the time, I, I started it because I was taking a lot of courses on feminist theory and history and I was, you know, watching Hillary Clinton's campaign and watching people like kind of applaud Hillary Clinton as like almost like an uber feminist. And I was feeling frustrated with that because I felt like her political um, resume had a lot of pretty harmful 
bills and decisions and um, various things that were that was really harmful to communities that I want to center in feminism. And so mm-hmm. I started Feminist Mantra Monday as a way of being like, I want to talk about feminist values. I want to share this education. I want to hold space for people to think more broadly about feminism than just like a woman in power. And I posted about three mantras and then we had the 2016 election and Hillary lost and Trump was elected. And real quick, (laughs) the (laughs) mantras switched from like, let me be lightly critical of what's happening in feminist discourse in the media Mm -hmm. to like, wow, I'm going to hold space for like, everyone's really hurting and this is really hard. Mm -hmm. Um, So then I wrote mantras for a year and I posted them every Monday on Instagram and on my website and I kind of built a little community around it. Like people started texting me if the mantra didn't go up Monday morning because they were <laughs> like really read them and um, paid That's attention cool. to them throughout the week. And after I posted them for a year, so like in then in October of like 2016, I had roughly 50 of them because there had been mm-hmm. 52 Mondays or whatnot. Um, and I was like, I want to do something with these. And I decided to compile them into a little manuscript. And I self-published a book of them that I called 50 Feminist Mantras because there were 50 and they were feminist mantras. And I like alliteration. So <laughs> it was like a very literal title. Um, and I self-published that book. I did a launch event for myself in Chicago. And then I did one in Brooklyn. And I sold a few hundred copies on my website and that was it. And it kind of just stayed on my website. Um, Fast forward, I guess, another year must have been. And that was then when I was thinking about wanting to start a podcast and I was thinking about wanting to travel. And then that's how 50, 50 Feminist States came out of that was like, I wanted to, as I've already mentioned, kind of the origin of that. Um, Mm -hmm you know, I wanted to get out of the city. I wanted to talk to feminist activists and artists more. And I think a real desire for that and the way that I think about the projects coming together is really that through the work of the feminist mantras, I had built a lot of personal practices around feminist values. I'd worked on, you know, changing my sense of time from linear and progressive to cyclical. I'd worked on, you know, releasing a sense of urgency in my life and allowing in like slowness and expansiveness. I'd worked on seeing like efficiency and profit as the ultimate motives and looking more at like process and um, experience over efficiency. So through the mantra work, I'd worked on those personal values in my life and to some extent, like the world around me a little bit and my close community. Mm-hmm. But I really wanted to connect that to a more... Um, like political sense of feminism, like feminist issues and causes in the world. And like, what were people doing? Because I don't think that feminism is just personal work. Like, I think Mm -hmm. that's a really important part of feminism. But I think that feminism cannot just be all of us at home journaling all the time. And I say that as someone (laughs) who wrote an illustrated journal (laughs) to help you cultivate (laughs) feminist consciousness. So um, Mm -hmm. The from the self-published version of 50 Feminist Mantras, um, it's actually funny because this is where 50 Feminist Mantras and 50 Feminist States intertwine because I haven't mentioned this on here yet, but um, I crowdfunded the first four seasons of 
Actually, I've crowdfunded everything on 50 Feminist Dates, but I did two crowdfunding campaigns. The first Mm -hmm. one to launch the podcast, I believe in 2018. And then the second one to fund future seasons, which I did in 2019. And when I was running that second Kickstarter campaign for 50 Feminist Dates, an editor saw the Kickstarter campaign for the podcast, went to my website and realized that I had already self-published a book and emailed me and asked if she could see the manuscript because she would, they were the publishing company she worked with was interested in buying it. Oh, very cool. So, um, I did not like produce 50 feminist mantras and 50 feminist dates together. Like I did 50 feminist mantras first and that in my mind was kind of wrapped up. And then I moved into working on 50 feminist states, mm-hmm. but like 50 Feminist Mantras would never have become the book it is now, which was published by Andrews McMeal in October of 2020. And you can mm-hmm. buy at bookstores all over the world. <laughs> um, you know, I never would have gotten that publishing contract if I had not been doing the podcast. And if I had not been out there talking about the podcast, crowdfunding for it, um, and producing that body of work as well. Yeah. So really the ways I see them working together now is that the mantras are about like the personal consciousness raising part of feminism and the podcast is about learning about feminist issues in the world and the activists and artists that are like speaking up for and about those issues. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think like those are the two really necessary components of anybody's feminist work or anyone's feminism. So I think, you know, I like to speak to part of your question, you know, I didn't like make <laughs> a book from my podcast. <laughs> I think that, in some ways, like, I just have a really clear, like, mission for myself at my Mm -hmm. core. And that is then what kind of channels in these different ways and different aspects of my work. And that's allowed me to um, just produce some kind of different projects, but that feel very related. And also, I just now all my friends joke that I just do 50 feminist everythings. So (laughs) some of them are waiting for like 50 feminist recipes, the cookbook and other ones are waiting for like 50 feminist quilts, the whatever. (laughs) Oh, man. That's funny. So you know, there that now it's just like my yeah, well, but I think that's a really good it's funny because on the episode this won't be in the sequence at all when I'm actually releasing it, but the episode that came out last week of April, I'll say it like that instead of saying last week, but the yeah. episode with Lauren Popish, she was talking about that intrinsic motivation piece. And mm-hmm. while you were just speaking, I was like, I really resonate with that because I have like three different buckets of things that I'm doing in the podcasting world mm-hmm. right now. And I'm like, but they're all centered on this same drive. And mm-hmm. so it's just other iterations of how can I do that and impact in these different spaces while also supporting my life and, you know, being yeah. a person in the world with <laughs> resp- financial responsibilities. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And I think like the balance, I mean, balance is the wrong word, but like the thing I'm always trying to do is manage like having a bunch of different things going on with also having a desire to integrate my work into, Mm -hmm. you know, fewer buckets, um, sometimes because sometimes I'm doing far too many things. Um, and other times I'm (laughs) other times I just can't help myself, but that's just one of like my, uh, I don't know. One of my like contracts with the universe is definitely around work and trying to figure out what I, uh, (laughs) what I meant to be doing. Um, but I really, I think that 50 feminist mantras and 50 feminist dates are too, really beautiful projects that dovetail together, like that are just 
I guess what I want to say is like, I think they're just even like cosmically intertwined, (laughs) particularly because of the way that the book deal happened because of the podcast. It just feels like they're really wrapped up together. And um, I don't know quite how to say this, but I I think that they will both be wrapping up kind of within the year and there Mm. will be kind of a, a closing of them together too. Um, yeah. that I'm still figuring out as, you know, 50 feminist dates has kind of been irrevocably changed by COVID. Um, mm-hmm. a road tripping podcast is just not really has, has not, has been impossible and unsafe for the past year and feels yeah. radically different to me coming out of a year of COVID. Um, mm-hmm. and then 50 feminist mantras is something I've, I, I've been writing mantras on Mondays for so many years now. And I think, um, and I currently, Um, I've moved off of Instagram. So now Feminist Mantra Monday happens via text message, which people can sign up for on my website and I'll text you Mm -hmm. a mantra every Monday from the book. Um, But, you know, that'll be finished at the end of the year too. And I'm kind of starting to look, think about and and feel my way into what wrapping up these projects would be like. And I've realized in feeling that, that they do feel so connected to me. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think they will probably wrap up together, um, even though I didn't start them together. (laughs) I'm really glad that you brought that up because I think, especially in an industry podcasting, there's almost this expectation for a lot of types of podcasts that they're just going to be indefinite. Mm -hmm. And I think also as like a creative, it's beautiful to be able to end something when it needs to end and then embark on something new. So, I mean, there's, there's a sadness of like, okay, now it's going to be not gone, but it's just not, it's not going to be a part of the everyday practice anymore, but Mm -hmm. then it opens space for something else. So I'm really excited to see what you'll be working on next. And yeah. 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 Me too. Um, there are, there's some like dreams in the pipeline for sure. And, um, you know, it's funny. I The very first podcast interview I did was with a friend who asked me to come on and talk about endings because mm. th- at that point I had just ended the first year of sharing feminist mantras on Instagram. And she's like, I'd love for you to come talk about how it felt to like do that for a year and then end that. <laughs> and then here I am, uh, what, like four <laughs> years later <laughs> on a oh. podcast talking about ending it. But um, that's funny. But I do. I agree with you. I think that it's 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 so there's this weird temporality in podcast like that we expect in our society where it's like everything needs to be new all the time. But one thing once things are started, they should just go forever. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, and that is <laughs> exhausting. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so, and like nothing works that way except capitalism. Nothing. <laughs> and so I um yeah, I do like to to share sort of like I like to, you know, I've started talking a little bit about thinking about how to end certain things. Um and I, you know, I'm a big believer. It says in my book like beginnings are always an ending and endings are always a beginning. Like that mm-hmm. those two always come hand in hand. Um the same way that like light is always alongside darkness and darkness is always alongside light. And um, and I think it's really, which just then reminds me a lesson I've been really trying to hold on to in the past year is just that like, I think grief and joy function the same way. They always Mm. come together. Like grief and joy are always connected. We may not be feeling them simultaneously, just like we may not be experiencing light and dark simultaneously, but um, 
but you have to have one to have the other. And so mm-hmm. that's, those are all things I'm feeling into as I think about um, kind of wrapping up these two projects that have been a huge part of my life for five years now. Yeah. I wonder how this work has, how have you come to reconsider the feminine quote unquote feminine? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <sighs> What a beautiful question. I just like, <laughs> like even just like sitting in the space of that question feels good. I mean, I think for me, it's kind of two, twofold, I guess, at least it's probably multifold, but at least the first thing that comes to mind is, um, that reconsidering the feminine just requires so much unlearning and undoing of what I see as like patriarchal white supremacist capitalist conditioning in our society. So Mm -hmm. when I talked about feminist values before and, you know, replacing something like product with process, like that's like this literal undoing of saying, like, if our society is um, only cares about the product of an experience, like the certificate you get at the end, (laughs) um, how do I how do I like undo that by focusing entirely on the process? You know, just kind of Mm -hmm. these like I think a lot about that when I think about reclaiming the feminine. And I think. Something I grapple with a lot too is as I reclaim the feminine and enjoy and unlearn a lot of masculine conditioning in my life, I feel like I kind of then step back through the feminine into a more like gender neutral or queer way of being or like world. Mm -hmm. Like I, I don't know that the feminine is like the product I have in mind there, but mm-hmm. I have had to, in order to unlearn ma- the masculine conditioning I have, the first step for me has been reclaiming the feminine. And as mm-hmm. I evolve in my self and my feminism, um, I don't know that the feminine is really always what I'm seeking anymore. You know, sometimes I think it is just like the beautiful, soft, expansive darkness that is the con, the that same like flip side bound to the like, powerful, assertive brightness of light (laughs) Um, and enlightenment that I see as a more like masculine values structure in our society. But then other times when I really think about what it means to like live in that liminality or like always held holding both, that's really what I want. And I, I don't even know that we have language for that yet, to be honest, like queer always comes to mind, but I'm not sure that that is like the right word either. So I think after giving that kind of answer, I guess what I would say is that to me, reclaiming the feminine has meant like holding space for my ongoing transformation and curiosity and learning, which brings us back to (laughs) (laughs) earlier in our conversation. Like it's just seeing myself soft as like soft and and malleable and and powerful because I am that way. Powerful because powerful, like, like water, um, maybe instead of fire, even though I have so many fire placements in my chart, <laughs> I'm very fiery. So there's nothing wrong with fire, but, um, I think, I think that's how I'd answer that question today. If you ask me in a few days, it might be totally different, but that's today's answer. That's how it goes. And that was also a wonderful answer to sit in just oh. like you sat in the question before you, you jumped in. Thank yeah. You. So, uh, we have our final three rapid fire questions. Great. And first one is 
Who would you name, if anyone, a mentor in the podcast space for you or just someone you emulate and love Mm. how they're moving in the space? Mm. Oh, I love this. Well, I guess I first want to say that my, um, if I was going to shout out anyone as like my personal mentors, it would be like the team at Chirp Radio, which is led by um, Sean Campbell, who's the director of the station. Um, Chirp is Chicago's independent radio project. And like I said, they taught me how to podcast to help produce their local music podcast. So um, I would love to just like thank that and name (laughs) that lineage for my own podcasting. It's given me like a really beautiful deeply DIY ethos to my podcasting that I think is um, so important to me and feels really good. I would also just say that like, when I think about the space at large, I love the work you're doing. I love the work that Lauren is doing at the wave and now with swell. And mm-hmm. um, I really admire the work of some of my friends from Chicago. Um, Cher Vincent, who produces a whole bunch of shows, um, kind of is on like behind the scenes on a variety of shows and freelances with a lot of different projects. I really admire Mm -hmm. Cher's work. I really admire my friend, Amanda Mayo, Roscoe Mayo, who does podcast editing and freelance work and put out a book or wrote a book called how to podcast that I always recommend to people. So those are some friends that I love in the space. And then of course, some people (laughs) I admire and some people I owe my entry into the space to. Beautiful. I love it. So similar to that one, what are some podcasts that we might find on your listening queue when you're listening for just like pleasure? Oh, great question. Um, I am definitely a podcaster who makes more podcasts than I listen to. Mm-hmm. You're not <laughs> um, alone. <laughs> yeah, I know. There's, there are many of us. Yes. Um, so things that I always love, and I'm going to pull up my phone so I even can like say all of them. Um, I love to listen to Feminist Hot Dog, which is run by oh, Adrian. Yeah. It's a podcast I have um, collaborated with a number of times and really enjoy. I think Adrian has like a really great um, sense of what's important to talk about in feminism and a really like mm-hmm. clear voice around like what it means to be a white woman in feminist space and hold space and host mm-hmm. space as a white woman within feminism, which I really value and admire and um wish I did with as much grace as I think Adrian does. <laughs> um, I love to listen to my friend and um, teacher, Mary Grace Allardyce's podcast. It's called the Homebody Podcast. It's mm. very much about like astrology and spirituality and personal evolution. And I really enjoy listening to that. I love to listen to Tarot for the Wild Soul with Lindsay Mack. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's where I get all my t- juicy tarot goodness. Um, (laughs) my friend Taylor Elise Morrison, who is actually how I found out about you, Alexandra, she runs a really cool podcast called inner Warm Up for her company inner workout. She, she's so great. And I really like inner Warm Up. It tries to flip the podcast format and like ask questions of the listener and like really Mm -hmm. make you reflect, which I think is a really interesting experiment. Um, and then I will just, okay, I'll do three more. So then, <laughs> sorry, I was like, oh, my God, name. Um, I have two amazing production clients who like record podcasts that I adore and I love listening to them while I edit. And that one is um, Ani of Close Knit Podcast. If you love fiber arts, she has an amazing podcast. The other is cool. Eliza Reynolds of Be Real with Eliza Reynolds. And she makes a podcast for 
um, preteen and teen girls and people who are socialized as girls. And it is so powerful. And I learned so much from it, even though I'm like double my preteen and teenage years now. (laughs) Um, and then I also listen to how I built this because I am forever like an entrepreneur and I love hearing how people start their businesses. So that's my mm-hmm. most like mainstream. Well, that and Song Exploder are my most mainstream listens. And then mm-hmm. everything else I started with are my more like deep dives into stuff I, I love. Nice. What a great compilation, like a great mix of yeah. like you can find something that you want or need that day. And also to your point about the teenager bit, I'm like, aren't we all still partially teenage? Like we're all still parts of our old younger selves just mixed in with all the other stuff. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, and I think honestly, I think all of us will be like healing our inner child or inner teenager for our entire lives. So yeah, 100%. (laughs) Yes. Okay. So final question is where can my listeners find you and support the work that you are doing? Yeah. So they can find me on my website, ameliaruby.com. They can find 50 Feminist States on its website, 50feministstates.com. You can also listen on any podcast player or platform that you tune in on. You'll find 50 Feminist States there. Um, And you can buy my book, 50 Feminist Mantras, anywhere books are sold. Um, And I am not on Instagram anymore, so you can find me there, but I will not be updating. So head to my website, subscribe to my newsletter. You can do that for the podcast too. And um, ask your local bookstore to stock my book because I would really appreciate that. And it's super beautiful and inviting and I highly recommend as well. Thank you. I appreciate (laughs) that so much. There's a whole uh, shelf of it behind me. Oh, that's it. That's not that people can see, but it's amazing promotion though, for any video that you're on. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's just, those are all the copies of it I have and they're all right there. I love it. Amazing. Well, Amelia, thank you so much for your time and your thoughtful answers and your beautiful reflections throughout this whole conversation. It was such a pleasure talking to you. Yeah. Thank you so much. It's so nice to talk to you for real, for real. I I know. (laughs) And I love that you have a podcast. I haven't said that yet, but I was (laughs) so thrilled when you started a podcast and I am honored to be on it among um, an, an amazing company. You have such a great guest list. So thank you. Our original music is produced by Carrie Blue, and everything else is produced by me, myself, and I, Miss Alexandra Cole. And you can follow me on Instagram at Podraland, P-O-D dot D-R-A-L-A-N-D, or Twitter at Podraland, minus the period. And you can find more of what I do on Podraland at www.podraland.com, where I recommend women-hosted podcasts and feature indie women podcasters. So I hope to see you there. Feel free to subscribe to the newsletter. You'll get recommendations and updates about this podcast. And finally, make sure to share this episode, tag us in it, like that shit, give us a review. Anything you do helps not just this podcast get more exposure, but also helps these women's voices be heard by way more people. And ultimately, that's our goal. So let's fucking do it. 